Think about the last time you got a call or an email or a direct message from someone who wanted to tell you a crazy story. And what Bill tells me is that he has stumbled upon a cross-country healthcare fraud case, and he is helping the federal government bust this thing wide open. You might have thought, there's no way whatever they're telling you could be true. But maybe it is. Over a career, I think you will waste a lot of time listening to the weirdos who bring you unbelievable stories. But if you don't listen to them, you'll never, ever get the one good one. On this week's episode, Brett Kalman, a healthcare reporter at The Tennessean, walks us through his investigation that revealed how a small Tennessee pain clinic swindled the military out of $65 million. Brett was tipped off to this story a few years ago, and it's followed him as he's changed jobs and moved across the country and there's still more to uncover. There was a military official who said that they thought in six months they had spent $2 billion on compounded pain creams for military members. My story is only about $65 million. By that count, that means there is a lot more money out there that hasn't been written about. I'm Abby Avriganya, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. In 2015, Brett was working as a public safety reporter at the Desert Sun, a newspaper in Palm Springs. And a few days before he was set to go on vacation, he got a call from this private investigator he knew, a guy named Bill. He said he had this giant thing he wanted to reveal to me. And he wouldn't tell me what it was over the phone, but it, it sounded very clandestine and cool. But it also sounded like something I didn't really feel like I had time for a few days before vacation. Brett drives over to Bill's house anyway to see what's going on. He hands me a package, a mail package, that is not addressed to him and not from him. And it's very clear to me that this is someone else's mail. And what Bill tells me is that he has stumbled upon a cross-country healthcare fraud case, and he is helping the federal government bust this thing wide open. Inside the box is a tube of what looks like sunscreen, but it's a prescription ordered by a doctor in Tennessee. A Marine gave Bill the medicine and told him what he knew about it. One of them explained to him that he was getting prescribed pain cream from Tennessee for no reason, and he was getting cash to do it, and I think he just threw the cream away when it showed up. And Bill recognized it all as some type of healthcare fraud. So he reported it to the feds and that he was supposedly working with them in secret to catch these guys. Brett is skeptical of all of this, and Bill tells him all the evidence of the scam is in a whistleblower lawsuit, but it's sealed. And I listened to him, and I kind of rolled my eyes, and I remember thinking, either none of this is real, or there's a real investigation and... My friend Bill has just sort of inflated his role in it. But either way, I don't think there's a reliable story to report here. But Bill does say one thing that sticks with Brett. The PI mentions it twice during their conversation. He points out that the doctor in Tennessee is named Susie Virgo. 
And he says, who's ever heard of a doctor named Susie? And I remember thinking, first, this is kind of a sexist thing to say. And two, my mother is named Susie, so I'm insulted. So it sticks with me. And even though he's not quite on board with what Bill is saying, Brett does a few things that will help him later. He records their interview and stores it online in the cloud, and he takes notes, too. I have exceptionally bad handwriting, so as soon as I take notes from any interview, I immediately retype the important figures into a Word document, and then a lot of the times I will email that to myself to create a cloud database of that document, which is not the most efficient way to do it, but it's just the way I have. Brett goes on his vacation, and Bill's story about the pain cream kind of fades away. Years pass, and in 2018, he gets a job as a healthcare reporter at the Tennessean. I'm kind of nervous in this new job. New city, new beat. So I'm working a lot of extra hours, staying at night, reading all the old coverage, trying to familiarize myself with my new home and my new responsibilities. And I come across this sort of routine night shift story about a doctor who pleaded guilty to healthcare fraud. And when I read it, I see the doctor's name is Susie Virgo. And I remember, who's ever heard of a doctor named Susie? And the thing all comes rushing back to me. Brett goes to find the whistleblower lawsuit that Bill told him about. In the years since their conversation, it's been unsealed. And the lawsuit is just as good as Bill said it would be. There is all of this documentation he has showing that he really was communicating with the feds and he really was handing over this pain cream to them as part of an ongoing investigation. And the fruits of that investigation have come to pass. There have been guilty pleadings from a handful of people involved in the case, including the doctors who wrote the prescriptions, as well as a nurse and a former Marine. A few more people have been charged. And I realized that I was given this window into what really was a cross-country healthcare fraud case years ago. And although I did not recognize it then, I now have this opportunity to tell the story unlike anyone else can. The audio and interview notes from a few years ago, they were waiting for him in the cloud. I also took pictures of the pain cream in Bill's office four years ago, but I did not upload those to any type of cloud server And when I switched iPhones, when I moved from one job to another, I lost them. Um, And what still bothers me is that the story could have had specific photographs of the exact creams we were talking about, but I did not maintain them like I did my notes. If there is a lesson in this, it is save your notes, upload stuff to some type of digital cloud that will save it for you. And if it becomes important later, you'll still have it. As Brett reported, the workings of the scam became clear. It started with a network of recruiters in California who would target Marines for their good government-funded health care. And they would convince Marines to sign up for these prescriptions for this pain and scar cream that the Marines didn't need and didn't want, but they enticed them by giving them cash kickbacks of like $300 a month. Once they had the Marines' insurance information, there were doctors in Tennessee who, who virtually did nothing but write these prescriptions without actually examining the patients and would prescribe them a, a very specialized 
compound pain cream, which they could then bill the government for at about $14,000 per tube. Over the course of about six months, doctors from the Tennessee clinic wrote approximately 4,500 prescriptions for compounded pain cream, averaging out to about 750 per month. Compounded medicine is a practice where a pharmacist mixes several medicines together, creating a treatment tailored to a specific patient. That's also what makes it so expensive. Those prescriptions got sent to a Utah pharmacy that would mail the drugs to the California Marines who, remember, didn't need the creams at all. In total, this scheme defrauded the military out of $65 million. It was a complicated operation, and Brett needed to keep everything organized in his reporting process. One thing I did in this case, which I've actually done in a lot of stories I've written over the years, is I like to actually map stories out. Um, I find a empty wall in a portion of the newsroom that people aren't using, and I put up post-it notes and um, you know draw lines between them back and forth, which... I've had people make fun of me because it makes it look like I'm pretending to be a television detective, and maybe in a way I am. But it can be very helpful to visualize a story with many, many parts to it. The crux of the conspiracy was the small clinic in East Tennessee that wrote all those prescriptions. It's now closed. And in January 2018, federal prosecutors indicted the couple that owns the clinic. They're also trying to seize properties that authorities say were bought with profits from the scam. Their case is still ongoing, and they have pleaded not guilty. The unsealed lawsuit was essential to understanding the scheme, but another kind of document was also really helpful. I would say that one of the strongest pieces of documentation in the story is actually the forfeiture affidavit. Um, and I would recommend that other journalists look for those when they're trying to learn a lot about criminal conspiracies. From my experience, when the federal government is investigating someone criminally in a very profitable crime, often long before they indict them, they file a document attempting to seize some of their property or their assets. And the facts that they file to justify seizing that property are the same facts that will eventually surface in the criminal case, but sometimes they're laid out much more plainly, and sometimes they are surfaced through the forfeiture affidavit 18 months ahead of the criminal case. Brett decided he wanted to see the clinic, along with the other properties that were involved in the federal investigation. You know, I had to drive out to East Tennessee because I wanted to see this clinic for myself that was at the center of this conspiracy. And the feds were also trying to seize a lot of land out there, which I don't know if you've ever read land seizure records from the federal government, but it's real hard to tell what they're after unless you actually go there and look at it. Documents showed the clinic owners bought a 60-acre mansion with money that traced back to earnings from the fraud. It wasn't until he got to the estate's locked gate that he understood exactly what the government was trying to seize. It was, for me, it was one of the biggest shocks of the whole story when I realized how much money we were talking about. Despite the fact that the story existed almost entirely in, in court documents, there were a lot of places to go. And uh, shoe leathering out to those places to look at them helped turn it into not just a document story. The forfeiture affidavit also confirmed Bill's role in the criminal investigation. It included the date the investigation began, which was an essential detail. 
And that date was important to me because I had documentation from Bill's lawsuit showing he had turned pain creams over to the feds about two weeks before the investigation began. And that was the final piece of proof that he had actually found this thing and not just contributed to an ongoing investigation. Finding forfeiture affidavits can be difficult, but Brett says it's worth it. They are a separate court filing that looks like a criminal filing, but it's actually against the property that's being seized. So like sometimes they say USA verse 1234 Fake Street, or sometimes they say USA verse the contents of five bank accounts, um, which makes them very hard to find. It's, you kind of have to already know what you're looking for to find forfeiture affidavits. But when you do, they'll talk all about the suspects in the case, even though they are not often titled against those suspects. Um, it, it's one of the trickiest parts of this job is finding those cases. But when you do find them, they are often a treasure trove of details. Another angle that made this story difficult was access, or actually lack of access. He couldn't talk to Bill or any of the defendants. Not only couldn't I talk to him, but all the hearings are in California, so I couldn't actually even go see them either. And remember, Brett was working in Tennessee by the time this all came to light. He tried talking to Bill again, but the private investigator filed a whistleblower lawsuit to get the equivalent of a finder's fee for reporting the scheme. So his lawyers advised him not to do another interview with Brett. But there's a few things that helped him fill in the gaps from a lack of interviews. You know, I, I hounded every attorney in the story, almost none of whom talked to me, but the few that did said some really good stuff. So it can be disheartening as a reporter to feel like you're just calling people for no comments and knowing you're just going to get no comments and what am I doing, wasting my time doing this. But then all of a sudden one of them talks to you and gives you the best quote in a story and you realize if you would have given up, you wouldn't have gotten it. The story of how Brett got the tip from Bill didn't make it into his investigation. I at one point tried to write a version of this story that had a first person section and talked about going to Bill's house in 2015 and not believing him and coming back to the story later. But it didn't really feel right in what was otherwise, you know, a hard news investigation. Um, but I knew I had this tale behind the tale I wanted to tell. And I remember explaining this article to my girlfriend and her saying that she thought the stuff about Bill was more interesting than the article I actually wrote. So I had this feeling that if I put it all on Twitter and sort of bared my soul a little bit, that it would resonate. I did not know exactly how much it would resonate. Brett's Twitter thread, Taking Readers Behind the Story, received more than 3,700 retweets and 9,000 likes. Brett says it helped pull back the curtain for audience members. I think there are a lot of people online and on Twitter who are rooting for journalists and journalism. And if you can give them a little window into not only the work you produce, but how it gets made and what it's like to do it, I, I think that is information that they will want and they will enjoy. Because 
it will help them feel like a part of the great endeavor that is journalism and help them make a connection with the journalists who produce it. The investigation published in February, and it's still ongoing. A new suspect was charged in Louisiana, and the owner of the pharmacy company at the heart of the scam confessed to conspiring to defraud the military. And there's still more to be uncovered. In fact, Brett says this exact story could be unfolding in your coverage area. In 2015, the Department of Defense said it hadn't done a good job of scrutinizing insurance claims for compounded pain cream. And there was a military official who said that they thought in six months they had spent $2 billion on compounded pain creams for military members. My story is only about $65 million. By that count, that means there is a lot more money out there that hasn't been written about. So I think that this scheme or schemes like it that may or may not be connected exist in all sorts of sizes and shapes all over this country right now. He even has suggestions on where to look. Last year, the Department of Justice put out a press release where they announced what they were calling, I think, the biggest healthcare fraud bust in the nation's history. In reality, it wasn't one bust. It was sort of a list of about 600 different busts that had happened over, I think, about a year and a half that they kind of all lumped together for a press conference. But I'd start there because with 600 different cases, many of which resemble this, I would not be surprised if there is one in your area. And there could be a prosecution like this going on right now that you just don't know about. takeaways is simple. Some stories might need a little extra time before they're ready to be told. Even if everything had gone right in 2015, I did not have the records to write this story well then. I really couldn't have done it right until somewhere in the second half of last year when I had verified proof that my private investigator, Bill, had really been the first guy to find this thing. And I think that's what really made the story sing, was kind of a like about this unlikely hero who stumbled upon a great conspiracy. So if I had forced it out early, I just, I don't think it would have been a compelling read. And the hurdle here was waiting till the time was right. Another lesson, don't dismiss the weirdos. So I think anyone who's ever worked at a paper knows that you have kind of just strange people that find their ways to you. And I have always tried to pride myself on listening to them more than most, because it's easy to just decide that they're off kilter and, and not listen to them. But I think in the back of every journalist's head, there's a little worry that this guy who's telling me a crazy story that's probably not true is in fact telling me a great story that is true. And you will, over a career, I think you will waste a lot of time listening to the weirdos who bring you unbelievable stories. But if you don't listen to them, you'll never, ever get the one good one. And, and, and that's what Bill was to me. 
So it's it's a balance. I mean, it's easy to assume that everyone with a out there story is wrong, but it's too much to risk to think that they've got to all be wrong. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to Brett's reporting and his Twitter thread. We'll also have a link to the Department of Defense press release where you can see if scams like this are happening near you. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org slash podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Abby Afriganya. Podcast. Podcast.